0: Hi, and welcome to to 9to42, the podcast from the team at The Guitar Show UK. Join us for interviews, updates and chat with artists, influencers and those that manufacture the gear that we love. Hello, and welcome to 9 to 42, the podcast from the guys behind the Guitar Show UK. Um, Le Grand Fromage, as we continue with our carry-on theme, is on screen with me. Uh, how are you, Jason? you alright? Oh, I'm alright, mate. How are you? I'm really, really well. Really, really well. Um, and in a slight change to the way we normally structure, um, we actually have our guest with us now as well. So we're going we're gonna to sort of dive straight in. So uh, Simon Bradley's on screen. Hi, Sam. How are you? Hey Ant, how you doing? I'm really right? well, really, really well. Excellent. Uh, and we've just been talking about what we introduced Simon as, because um, there's a whole raft of things we could have chosen uh, tonight, uh, but we're going to introduce him as author and also host of the uh, guitar show Live Stage, which is probably where most people will know you from, I guess. Um, I hope so. So how's Saturday evening uh, treating you?
1: Well, it's treating me okay. I had to do a work today, so I'm a bit uh, hot and bothered, to be honest with you. I had to do horrible work, but um, I'm home, I'm here, I'm bearded. so we're all, you know, on a Saturday <laughs> night. Can't really go. I can't ask for much more than that, to be honest. But look, yeah, very well, thanks, mate.
0: And looking resplendent in that Spinal Tap T-shirt, which is a thing of absolute beauty. Uh, it is, I, isn't it? Yeah, it is. That is... That is something else. We'll need a picture of that to go with the podcast. That's that's quite yeah, special. Yeah, no problem
1: at all. Where did you get that from then? Uh, online. I think it's called shotdeadinthehead.com or something. But uh, <laughs> it's a, I know, not very okay. funny these days, I grant you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. But uh, they but I've had this for a thousand years. I remember I went to a Marshall Amp launch at Milton Keynes and walked in with it.
0: Right.
1: And uh, everybody was sort of like going, where would you get that from? Where did you get that from? I was just like this. And Victoria Marshall, who was running Marshall, this is a million years ago, Victoria Marshall was running, it must have been the launch of the JVM, I suppose, really wanted, wanted me to send her, a, wanted me to send her a, a T-shirt. And I said I would, but didn't, because it was like 25 quid. <laughs> I think yeah. you do, right? Yeah, I think, I, think, you
2: know, I think when you are running Marshall, you can afford to buy your own T-shirts.
1: Well, yeah, and it doesn't have to say Marshall on it either. I remember Chris George, who was Demo at the time, um, I'm sure Steve knows him, uh, was absolutely enamoured by it. He says, I'll buy it off you now. He goes, I'll buy it off you now. (laughs) No. No. I'm not being topless in front of Jim Marshall. (laughs) Again.
0: (laughs) Has it always been pink then? Or is that there's no no kind of, that wasn't a bad wash, was it? It's always been that colour. It's
1: it's been washed a thousand times and it is glowing with my lager red. (laughs) My lager red face. I thought you'd got, because I I
2: can't, from the screen, I can't see the Spinal Tap picture. I genuinely thought you'd got a Villa top on in some kind of lost hope for tomorrow.
1: I was going to say, if this was after Sunday, I would or wouldn't. Um, But uh, I think, I don't want to talk about football. Because I know why you you want to talk about football, (laughs) you boing bugger. But that's fine. (laughs) Once we lose to West Ham and it's all the, it's all gone, and Jack goes to Man United, then it's all gone. Oh. A...
0: I'm happy to talk about football as well because I'm a blade. So uh... I,
1: I know. I heard you whinging about the VAR goal the other day again. That was against us, wasn't it? <laughs> uh, yes, it yes, was. and it was a yes. goal. You were absolutely yes. robbed blind.
0: We, yes, we were. We were. Yes, you were. And to be fair, and you know what, it might even cost us a place in Europe, but I don't care because I don't. I'm probably the only blade who doesn't want to be in Europe next year. Because I, th- I just, I, I don't, oh. I, 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 we can wait for that. Well, that to, like to be weeks.
2: honest, I mean, in a normal year, you'd be starting the season roundabout now, wouldn't you? Yeah. <laughs> well, we would We would have,
0: we a bit about a week away, wouldn't we? Week of mm-hmm. week, yeah. week maybe.
1: But. Yeah. Weird stuff.
0: Yeah, yeah. But actually, yeah, before let's.
2: we before we move on and we, we talk about um Carry On Films, I'd just like to apologise to the five listeners we've got in Iceland who probably hadn't got a clue what we were talking about. And I was so impressed when I looked at the figures that we've got five listeners in Iceland and uh, two in Kenya and four in Japan. I mean, this is but in Iceland... Kenya? Kenya, I know, Two. Four in Japan, 13 in Australia, 26 in the US of A. Um, But it was the Iceland thing that did it, because I thought five people in Mm. Iceland, that's probably a significant percentage of the population, (laughs) because there's only like 350,000 people that live there. You sure it's not one
0: person in Iceland who's downloaded five episodes, are you? It might well be, but let's not ruin it. All right, (laughs) okay, okay.
1: The figures almost never lie or exaggerate anything. Kenya, I'm amazed by that. I know. I mean, Fair I've, play. Yeah. I've been there know. as well. So there we
2: go. No, I've, I've never been to Kenya. I've been to Iceland and absolutely mm. adored it. Mm. But now, when I return, I'll return as a god.
1: I mean, five people in Iceland.
2: <laughs> <You know? laughs> That's practically a
1: district of Reykjavik. Well, the homework <laughs> for next podcast is to learn head cheese in uh, Iceland. <laughs> okay. So somebody who can do it.
2: Yeah, that's not a problem. My uh, my sister in law's Swedish. I'm sure it's a very no, 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 no. language.
1: Oh. I think it that's is. Three 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 listeners left. I think.
2: I think I think I've got to remember now because I had a bit of a sort of, part of history. I got I got a feeling that it was invaded so many times that actually they speak a combination of like Norwegian, uh, Danish, and Swedish. Uh,
1: okay. I, I wish I hadn't got I wish you got that history degree and I've no idea what he's on about no
2: yeah. <laughs> no anyway shall we shall we shall we move yes. on to guitars I
1: I, I, Cause... shall we yeah
2: mm. so I, I mean it's I mean I suppose I should sort of like say now that uh, I'm 50 and I think I've known you since I was 17
1: yeah I think that's about right I mean I'm 55 so it must be it must be 35 40 years it must be I was trying to remember on the way home what the last time I mean I don't remember you coming into the shop and saying and me going you'll do which I'm sure you'll tell the story of I don't remember doing that no Getting getting you in your band but it's been that yeah it's been that long I mean obviously like I said I knew Mark I've known Mark since school and you must have been around that sort of that sort of time but it's certainly getting on for 40 years yeah
2: yeah so yeah i was 17 and i know i was 17 when i joined (coughs) that first band because Mm. i celebrated my 18th birthday in the um what was that pub around the corner from the rehearsal room um rope rope walk uh no well it? it Uh, bull's head bull's head i celebrated my 18th birthday in there with uh, you and the The band and stuff like. Well, I wasn't really celebrating. I just kind of dropped it into conversation that I was eighteen, and everybody was like, "You mean you were seventeen when you were in the band?" I was like, "Eh, "Yeah." No one had ever asked me, but because I've been six foot two since I was like fourteen, I'd managed to get away with it for such a long time. And of course, Mm. the the barman was like,
1: "But I've been serving you for six months." Yeah, yeah, but we've all we've all been there. We've all done that. We've all got that that story. Yeah, we've all been there. But, uh, yeah, I do remember you being very tall. Very tall. And you could you could walk the walk as well, and you could wear all that ridiculous girl's clothing and pull it off. I just looked like crystal tips when I tried that. <laughs> well, it
2: was a lot thinner then. So, uh, you know, I think to
1: to carry off the so. cowboy
2: boots, black jeans, polka dot shirt and the back-combed hair, you had to be kind of long and thin, really.
1: Yes, the you did. I just looked awful. I remember walking back home up the ramp to the old New Street station. And I'd got a pair of £12.95 Cowboy boots from Oasis, Mm. and they had the plastic (laughs) heels, and they just slip like that. (laughs) And I remember, am I allowed to swear on this? Yeah, fine. I remember walking up the ramp, past all those little tire kickers that, that's really an obnoxious phrase, little children there. Mm. And I went like that, and they went long-eared prick. And I went. Sorry. <laughs> and I put. I, when I got home, I put them in the bin and never wore them again. So there we go. And that's why I, And that's why I never joined Motley Crew. One of the many reasons why I didn't join the Motley Crew. Because
2: <laughs> they were crap. Was the other one I would imagine.
1: Well, yeah. <laughs> and then
0: I had again, a no. I had a problem with cowboy boots that I, I, for whatever reason, my my ankles were too big, so I couldn't I couldn't do <laughs> cowboy boots. So I had to I had to buy the kind of more like. Cowboy boot bottoms, but they were only like the pixie boot height. Oh, oh yeah. pixie boots! No,
1: uh, and,
0: and then shove them under my jeans, hoping that people would think I'd got a full length set of cowboy boots on. When in reality, they only they only came up my leg. You know, my my, oh, my socks still
1: went above them. Oh, I ah. wish i thought that. I oh, know I couldn't pull them off. I couldn't pull them off. You, know, I
2: had to, you used to wear them outside of the jeans for full on slash. As uh, that weird, oh, yeah. my, Moment in nineteen eighty seven where everybody kind of went from Dr. Martins mm. to cowboy boots almost overnight, you know, uh-huh. and we're dripping in sort of like bullet belts and bandanas mm. and bangles, mm. you know. It's, yeah, it was
0: a
1: just, beautiful I had, time. I just <laughs> couldn't. I just couldn't pull it off. Yeah. I could not pull it off. I was in a band called Primal Trash, which sounds worse than it is, with Andy Sadovsky. Who, oh right uh, for for Tama reference and drummer
2: yeah andy uh, is now the um is he head of drums or, uh no he's not head of drums he's the uk sales rep isn't he for uh Tama and um
1: yeah zildjian yeah that's right but that's uh that's not fcn is it? it's headstock isn't it headstock yeah and we were in this band and uh he's a fantastic drummer and still is i'm sure left-handed but you know you can't have everything but um, I hope you won't mind me saying this. Me and him both looked like we'd been dressed by our sisters. And the other three lads in the band, especially the singer, Jez, who's a beautiful-looking young man and still is. I'll, t- I'll tell you, he's great. Just ran the whole thing. And we really enjoyed that. But I was never comfortable with all of this sort of stuff. Oh. Awful. Just, I look like Mick Mars, but not in a good way. And it's just terrifying, <laughs> terrifyingly bad, really. So you... Um... You got me in my first band
2: by me walking mm. into musical exchanges and you saying you'll do. I know you don't yes. remember it, but I do. And I was I, like, uh, sure I, I can't sure really I play. And you went, yeah, it doesn't really matter. You just look like you're fit in my mate's band. So I, I, I went and auditioned. I was suitably awful. Um, but, you know, I did look good. So I got the gig, <laughs> which is, which light, is absolute see? proof um, that, you know, the public listen with their eyes and not their ears. And um and then you sold me my f- we were starting to get ready to um do gigs and um I'd got a crappy little twelve watt home tranny Marshall mm. sort of practice amp. And you were like, you need a proper amp. Hang on a minute, we've had a second hand one come into exchanges and I ended up coming down I think it was a hundred pounds and I you uh, you sold me a four by twelve laney hundred watt head. That, You're welcome. That, that was utterly amazing but never got above two on the volume i mean it was just which i i kept I gigged that amp probably until i was about uh, probably a decade of gigging it uh, and we did um we did one gig in warsaw um i can't remember mm. what the pub was called uh i was really excited to play there because slade had had a residency there before they kind of you know took off mm. yeah and you know Obviously, being a, a Brummie, uh, anywhere that Slade have played is high up on the list of places you want to play. Absolutely. And, uh, it was up, the, the loading was up a fire escape with a 4 b 12 That was the last gig I ever did with that amp. I uh, then
1: went and bought a 2 B 12 combo. <laughs> I'm going to say, again, they look good and a pain's in the backside, those things. Yeah. Did you ever play the um, the Welsh Club in Cardiff? Uh, that's uh, got the uh, club. That's it got up. the ulti- <laughs> club. ball Sorry about yeah. my Welsh everyone, but that's got the dictionary definition of a loading up the fire escape. And in our in our Iron Maiden tribute band, we had to get an Ampeg eight B ten and an SVT three hundred up there, oh, and oh. it was raining, and it was Tuesday night, and uh, our bass player, who's fantastic, is really good at mine and still is fortunately speed harris although his natural name or his mum calls him dean goes i'm gonna lose it i'm gonna lose it i'm gonna lose t- it and i was like underneath it <laughs> this bloody thing. the corner was in my cheek <laughs> and i looked up and he was just stood there like this laughing because he could you know mock me into a cocked hat and i remember playing that and it was a great kick, very good fun but, my God, I had a bruise on my cheek from the corner of his cab for, like, six weeks afterwards.
2: <laughs> so that was one of I the things that I'd got written down, really, the uh, the Iron Maiden Tribute Act. Mm.
1: You you started that, didn't you? Well, it was it was started by Steve Parry, who was in the uh, repairs department at Exchanges at the time. But it was his idea. But me and him used to go to Rabana's and take it in turns to play guitar and bass, because he's... He's such a talented musician. He's still, I mean, it's, he was just, he could do that Steve Harris, the little thing, which I just can't do. Even just between me and Steve, but he was so good and we arranged all the things and we went through, um, you know, we did all the auditioning together and we had this singer called Elias who was Lebanese, which is neither here nor there, but he was. And Dean on bass, I think it was Steve Parry's mate. I think it was called Steve, sorry, Steve on drums and me and Steve Parry would play guitar and we played at the Market Tavern in Kiddie in 94 or 5 or something and then Elias was seriously was called back for national service in Lebanon never to be seen again I don't mean I hope to god it doesn't mean anything worse he just didn't come back to England after that but the band got really good I we were starting to get really we were really good the music was really good and really good fun to play and we could really do it And I got the job on guitarist, just as we were starting to take off, as it were, Little Fish in Big Pond, as it were. So they got another Dave Murray, and they really went to town. They came to the attention of Maiden themselves and played a couple of fan club events. I think they played the Astoria, as was, at a sort of a Maiden fan club event. And it might not have been there. It might've been there, I can't remember, but Nico played drums with them. Steve Harris played drums with them. And Adrian Smith played drums. And there's a brilliant picture of Steve Parry, who was Adrian Smith, Adrian Swift, I should say, with a terrible wig, deliberately terrible, with a sweatband round it, with a JD Explorer. And Adrian with a sort of scarf during the proper rock star at large, laughing his head off. But it was really good. It was really good fun. And uh, I can't, it's sort of it's schismed now into High on Maiden, which is what that band was called and Higher on Maiden. But, um, you know, that's, Oh my God,
2: so they've done like a pro-root Saxon, um, what's the other, Sa- Oliver Dawson Saxon, they've actually split like a pro band yeah. and formed two mm.
1: similar named bands. Yeah, well it's, the, it's infinite returns isn't it, because they were called Sons of Son of a Bitch before they were Saxon, I think Graham went back to doing yeah. Son of a Bitch to the interest of nobody, with mm. the greatest respect. Fabulous. Saxon were fine for their time, but uh, nah.
2: So how do you go from Musical Exchanges to Stocks Fitness Club to Guitarist Magazine?
1: Well, that's a very good question. As I say, I got a hotel catering degree, well, HND, I should say, and on the back of that went to work at a hotel. This is part of the story. And that was a Hall Hotel in Sutton, which is very posh and still is as far as I'm concerned. But by sheer coincidence, the night porter was Blaze Bailey, would you believe? <laughs> I don't think I've actually told you that the actual Blaze Bailey it was. So, I was doing the proper career thing with passive-aggressive pressure from certainly my dear old dad, get a proper job. But with Blaze, who is just—he's exactly what he's like on stage, especially with Wolfsbane and back in the day in the eighties and the nineties. He would sk- he would put trays on his feet and get two brooms and would ski past using <laughs> a on the carpet because it was pretty frictionless while I was trying to check people in. And we really hit it off because we realised we like the same sort of music. I mean, Wolfsbane was still doing little little club, little gym, little club, clubs in Tamworth and we saw them so many times. But he got the first David Lee Roth album, The Eat em and Smile with Vi. I'd never heard of Vi at all. I was aware of Dave because of Van Halen, of course. And we just listened to that the whole time and that got me thinking, I don't want to be a... A hotel receptionist. A uh, yes, sir, no, sir. I really don't. So one day I had a row with the with the reception manager. who was a perfectly nice woman. We just didn't really hit it off at all. And in the good, of, this was this was nineteen eighty eight or nine, something like that. So it's before the internet and before all the good stuff. And I forgot the Yellow Pages and went through all the uh, all the music shops. And I started with a uh, Fair Deal Music. No Jones and Crossland. No. And got through to musical exchanges by coincidence there was a guy who was a legend there called simon lawrence had handed his a notice in that very week by all accounts so mark whitehouse who was the boss of the guitar department then said uh, well yeah do you want to come in for a chat tomorrow like and i went yeah okay and was offered as you know today's vernacular was offered the job there and then and I, that was, I don't know, end of the week. And I started the, the, a week the following Monday, having given a week's notice at the hotel while I'm just going, because there was no contract or, you know, you've got to give three months notice only. And that was it. So it was just right place, right time. As a lot of good things in most people's lives depend on to a greater or lesser extent. And I had, f- I had five years there, and it was just fantastic. Made lots of good mates that I still keep in touch with. Gaz Morris... Um, from fair deal now johnny grant of course steve parry dave moore all those guys and stuart it, russell as well I brilliant it's it's a remarkable
2: store and it wasn't until i you know I, I i got a job working at the nec really which meant that i traveled quite a bit um mm. around the uk and i'd and i'd make sure that wherever i was going i could pop into a code of music or something that you know i'd plan my yeah. route so i could go past those stores and um and most of the time being incredibly disappointed in the early 90s at how small they were uh, and stuff. But um, it, it, I look back now, and it was, it was obviously you that went on to guitarists. You've got Dance, that's now the voice of talk sport football, which is ridiculous. Um, mm. You've got Martin, who's head of guitars at Yamaha. You've got, um, oh, what's his name, um,
1: head of custom shop in the UK. But it was a great it was a great breeding ground and, and Musical Exchanges of that time was of its time. And uh, there was you know, I think there was A one Music up north, there was Us in Brum and there was Rose Morris in Britain, in London. Obviously Denmark Street was a growing concern from what I remember. There's lots of little smaller yeah. shops. But prior to just looking at something online and clicking and buying This is when you physically had to go in and try it on. I remember that we had the very first PRS 10 top in Europe, apparently. Uh, We had the first Ibanez Gem. We had a Loch Ness Green Ibanez Gem and they made like four of those. Well, they made 777 of those, but we actually had one. Mm. And what a custom shop, uh, not custom shop, but Strats, Marshalls, everywhere. And that's why it was so busy on a Saturday, which I'm sure you'll remember. From half nine until half five, it was just organised chaos. And we couldn't take money quickly enough. We just couldn't sell stuff quickly enough. And uh, I don't think they'll mind now, but I remember one December, the guitar department took 40 grand, the drum department took seven, PA took 12 and keyboard took something like 28. And that was one Saturday in cash in the tills absolutely ridiculous and that's the sort of money that uh opens anybody's legs really
2: yeah it's an incredible store mm. and you know yeah. i think i think there's a lot of people like me that look back fondly on it but then you realize that that store just couldn't exist today not in today's no. world which is a real no, shame absolutely because, not. because as a you know a young guitar player who couldn't afford a fat lot who had a hondo les paul and a columbus les paul The fact that you used to be able to go in and I'd go, can I have a go on that Gibson Les Paul Custom? And they go, of course you can, son, and just hand it over. It was just amazing. So, you know, when I got a job, I got a credit card and the first thing I did was walked in and bought a Les Paul Custom.
1: Well, that's why we used to let most people, you know, not little children, but that's why we used to get most people, can I have a go on that, mate? Because that's exactly what would happen. They'd come back six months later and buy it. The same with that a kid used to come in every saturday and play the desert yellow gem ibanez gem every saturday could I have a go on that yeah <laughs> and one day one day he came in and he had 999 quid that his nan had given him or whatever and he bought it and it had the fingerboard which was very very rough deliberately so unfinished maple massive uh, radius and it was covered in finger poo, 99% of which was his. <laughs> so, so I think Gary Morris sold it him in the end, which is fair enough. But Gaz was going, Well, do you want us to clean it up? And he went, No, it's all mine, that. It's all mine. <laughs> and he came in with, as I said, he came in with his nan with 999 quid which, in you 1988. Know, that, Unbelievable. Yeah, it's a lot of money in it. Yeah, it really is. I remember it so well. I remember those days so well. And it was. It was literally laugh a minute. It really was. Should we go and do some work? Yeah. Okay. Sell this. Sell a five string left handed GNL bass. No problem. <laughs> Sold it. Absolutely brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. I mean, there was all sorts of shenanigans that went on as a, honestly, the, the fantasy thing. If, if you had a time machine, what would you do? I would go back then with the money that I have now as a 55 year old mortgage holder and buy all of the second-hand bobbins that was downstairs. Yeah. I don't know if you ever went downstairs, but in yeah. the repair department. Next time you see Rob Williams at the show, we'll have a chat about it. They were, I remember there were piles, literally piles, of Ibanez Destroyers, oh. which is like the, like the one that um, Phil Collin and Adrian Smith played in the 80s. And they go for thousands on eBay. They were 170 quid, and they were literally piled up. like bits like like uh, slices of toast absolutely preposterous gretches i remember we got the first esp before they were electric before they were esp usa electric sound products i think they were called they had an eclipse which is just the s the hss s type i put it on a stand turned around and caught it and it fell on the floor snapped the headstock off (laughs) and took it back off show and put it downstairs and never to be seen again you know, it was on show for eight minutes before my fat arm <laughs> broke it. You know, a 900-quid ESP, before they were even ESP, a Japanese thing. Wow! Charbles Jacksons, pre-CBS Strats, 50s Gretches. you know, these lawsuit firebirds. It was a Tokai lawsuit firebird. My God, if I could have that now, it'd be worth a fortune. Yeah. But then we've all got that, the ones that got away, haven't we? Well, yeah, mine is that Les Paul custom
2: that I bought when I was 18. Yeah, I can uh, imagine. That I ended up selling to pay the gas bill, which is, you know, still rankles to this day, almost 30 (laughs) years later.
1: Well, I I was the same thing. I had a black 74 custom that I'd bought from the shop, actually bought, disbelievers, and sold it to insure my Sierra that got nicked later on in the year. I mean, how grand that is that, selling a lovely guitar to insure the car? But, you know, you've got to... And that sort of Brownian motion of having gear is what we wind up with today, which is ulcers and a meaning and a knackered old Gretsch, which is what I've got.
2: <laughs> so so we went from exchanges to um, the health club, I assume, and then the health club to yes. guitarist?
1: Uh, yeah. Uh, I, these days, if you want to get a job in guitarist, you need to have a qualification. You need to have a... NUJ qualification or a BSC or something like that. Me, I went to see the aforementioned Mark Cheatham in the Isle of Wight, who staying at his parents' place. And I bought a copy of Guitarist. i had been on the Dole for two years by then as guitar tech for Magnum. Then again, there's some stories not to be told in the public domain, my God, I'm surprised we were walking sideways at the end of that tour, I must say. But anyway, I got a copy of a guitarist to read on the train down. And after a Nick Kershaw interview, this was 1995, there was a half page ad, would you like to write for guitarist? And I went, yes, please. So instead of spending the whole weekend with Mark and he, I think, I'm not sure if Karis was around at the time, but certainly his parents were, just hanging out with them. I spent the whole time working on this application that they needed. And they needed a review of my main guitar, which is the Takamini, and a and a fake review, you could make it up, of a rock star of your choice. So I actually did um, Tony Clark in for Magnum because he was a well, not a mate, but I knew how to get hold of him. And uh, applied, didn't get the job the first time. Joined a courier company in Aston, Crown Couriers. <laughs> Awful! Oh God, that was a job. And about eight months later, I came in, came came home just having had one of those days. You know, you have a bad day, and your head's flat, and you go, "I can't take another thing. I cannot take another thing." And Greg, who we were living with at the time, Greg and Deb, Greg said, he goes, just listen to the answer machine. I went, I can't be arsed with the answer machine. Just listen to the answer machine. And it was Neville Martin, the lovely Neville Martin, who was offering me a job. The guy that they'd taken on um, had moved on or somebody else had left. I think, I think actually, I think it was Jordan who had left. Oh, uh, right. Our, okay. Jordan, our Jordan, although I can't remember. I'm sure it was Jordan who had left. Either Jordan or Tim Slater had left anyway. And would I like the job? And I went, "Mm mm-hmm, and started whenever that was. I think my first issue was May '96 with Dimebag on the cover. My first review was a Roland Cube or a precursor of the same. And we were in Ely for about three months, and then we all came in one day, and there was very sombre faces, and there were big people in big suits and big cars, Saying hello, we're from Future Publishing, we've just bought you, you're all moving to Bath. And everybody who lived in Ely or Cambridge or had just got a mortgage, there was a couple of people who had literally got a mortgage that year, were in bits, and I went, Fucking hey! And then got really <laughs> guilty for shouting that. And we came down to Bath, we were down in Bath by September, and yeah, I stayed there until um well when would it be in October 2013? Ask me anything. <laughs>
2: I mean, one of the things I was going to ask you is that over the last last few weeks, you've been doing hysterical, the stories behind the interviews. Oh, yeah. So, the, um, I mean, the, I, if you don't mind, I, I will pinch this photo and stick it up on the uh, social media feeds. If you stood next to Angus Young, mm-hmm. and, you know, I, I say I've known you a really long time, I've never considered you to be a giant of a human being, but... In that photograph, right. you tower over Angus, you know.
1: It's just it's just ridiculous. As I say, I shook his hand, crunched the knuckles like you would <laughs> accidentally with somebody's 10-year-old son. And uh I thought, oh, God, he played back in black with that, and I kind of bossed his hand. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I, I don't know how tall he was. I'd be surprised if he's five foot. I really would. Absolutely elfin, but it doesn't matter, does it?
2: I think your uh, your little stories behind the scenes have been hugely amusing on Facebook. Have you, have you had a good response to them?
1: Well, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm not really a, a social media, well, guru isn't the right word. I just use Facebook as a way of keeping in touch with people, not least your good self, um, who I don't see for months at a time, let alone people who live in Australia or live in Manchester or something. It, you know, I don't use it as a, as a marketing platform for Simon Bradley, the brand, whatever that might be. But I I really enjoy the writing process, just coming up with an idea and just going splurge onto a laptop. I love that. And that's doing those stories was just a way of keeping, keeping it ticking over as it were. I mean, since lockdown, I've had a lot of work, relatively speaking, as far as freelance goes, From Music Radar and from Total Guitar. So thank you guys for that. Loads more than I've had in the last two or three years because obviously they need content and they need it quickly, but obviously they've got no budget. So the stuff that we do doesn't cost them very much. And I really enjoy, I really enjoy doing it. But uh, I can't think of any more stories other than, other than maybe a couple more. But it was just, it was a self congratulatory exercise to be honest just think of a story and just expand it you know like those view from the bus things it's 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 just a way of writing just a way of allowing my allowing me to write just for the enjoyment of writing and it's a it's a rare pleasure that I get from doing it these days as it were and uh yeah those stories are great and lots of people have said you know it's I say only it's mate it's nothing elsewhere um but it's, you know, lots of people of our age fantasise meeting these people. And, you know, for different reasons, you and I have managed to do it. And, uh, you know, Mark's been around the world with the Wild Hearts, so he's done it as well. I never would have thought of towering over Angus Young when we were in, in exchanges mucking about. Let alone weeing <laughs> in Brian May's loo. You know, it's all it's all living the dream. Man.
2: <laughs> well, I suppose, you know, well, now we've gotten to uh, Brian May. So, yes, as you can see, I bought your book, Brian May's Red Special. Um,
1: the story of a homemade guitar that rocked Queen and the World.
2: So how do you go from, um, I suppose it was after, Was it? had you left a guitarist magazine before the book?
1: Uh, sort of halfway through, the book process began sort of 2012-ish. My deadline was something like June 2013 thanks to a massively globally famous rock star who shall remain nameless, <clears throat> the deadline went to May 2014 and it was launched, published on October. So I left Guitarist in October 2013 and uh, the book came out, the first edition came out a year later. Oh,
2: cool. So how did you, how'd but, you um, end up writing a book with Brian May?
1: Well, we used to get loads of books at Guitarist and I remember I remember it clearly. We got a copy of um the black strat by phil taylor who's um mm. gilmore's t- of you know, the black i mean he's uh, david's auctioned it now and i don't care what well, i do I, I don't mind floyd i'm neither here nor there their music's wonderful and i think gilmore's a fat, unbelievably good player and as an aside with video uh demos for guitarists i was often referred to as the fat fucking gilmore so i have a sort of a i have an empathy for him don't huh. You, you do on. certain have a certain yeah. resemblance to him. I know, I do, yeah. <laughs> I wish I could play like him, yeah. they say. There's my obvious retort to that. Yes, it's, it's been said many times, and it's undeniably true, although he's uh, definitely greyer than I am now. So, yeah, so we got that, and it's um, in its fourth edition, the Blackstrap book, so what do I know? But I thought the repro was pretty average, to say the least, uh, I didn't like the writing. This is just my opinion, Phil. Just my opinion. Um, and I thought, uh, and also the intro, the first edition, the little paragraph from David, and I'm paraphrasing here, but I promise this is the vibe of it, was, I can't imagine anybody will be interested in a book like this, David Gilmore. Wow. I promised that. was So I might be paraphrasing, but that's definitely the vibe. And I thought, wouldn't it be good if somebody that had, book on Brian May's homemade guitar. So it was often when I have an idea that, it, that is even in Brian's uh, sphere of influence, I ring up my mate Pete Malindrone, who is Brian's guitar tech, and I rang him and he and Pete said, uh, well, Brian's been trying to get a book on the guitar going for 25 years and can't get it off the ground. And he suggested why don't you just put it together over the next six months and With a view of just coming to coming to Brian's place and pitching it to Brian himself. So that's obviously as far as writing a feature for guitarists, that's exactly what you'd do. You'd come up with the idea. When you have an issue meeting, you say, I think we should do this, pitch it to the team, and they go yes or no, or mold it to their will. And it was much the same process, although much, much longer. You know, I think it's about thirty five thousand words the first edition. And had to go down and pitch it to Brian May. So I got a really good mate of mine who was an art editor, and still is, Sarah Clark, to do a few spreads. We mocked up a few covers and mocked up a few spreads with, with dummy with dummy copy, so he, Brian could get an idea of the vibe of it. And uh, to cut a very long story short, because it takes Brian to, so long to decide to do anything, which is fair enough, that's his right, um, he went for it. So I had to do the pitch to Carlton Books who at the time published all of Queen's stuff hmm. and a lot of Brian's stuff before he launched the London Stereographic Society, which do all of his books now. And I was I was there in a suit and tie, me and Sarah and I, pitching this whole idea in a proper grown-up way in that London and Carlton books. And, I, you know, they'd already sold the idea to Carlton's managing director, who had the final say on an untried author, which I am was an untried author, and uh, Jim Beach, who is Queen's manager, and uh, again after having, hit, after treating him so well to quote him at the at the uh, NMS in 1999, the whole relationship that we have, that I have with Brian is based on the trust side of things. So as long as you don't, you know, betray his trust in any way, shape, or form, then you're okay. Which is fair enough. I mean, I think most of us would live by live, would live by those those rules. So I pitched it and they said, great, get it, done by, uh, get it done by June next year, which is 2013. So I booked a whole day interview with Brian in August of that year. And we went into one of his outhouses and what Pete had done as a surprise for Brian mostly, but it was a surprise to me as well, had mocked up a 1960s living room. Obviously Brian's got so, all the documents from the guitar all pictures from the guitar, like in 1963 and 1964, he's got every single bit of paper pertaining to guitar. Um, his dad used to build box Brownie cameras, hence they have pictures. And some of the pictures of those are in the book. And that's what, that's what makes it so good. And we just, I, I came up with 40 or 50 questions designed specifically to take him in a particular direction. And if you he, if he veered off too far, another question to get it back in. Because obviously he'd been asked about the guitar a million times. So what I was trying to do is not get stock answers out of him um, because when he's been interviewed as many times as he has, you know, why did you use a knitting needle for the tremolo arm? Oh, well, my mother had this, my mother had that, which is basically true. But I want you to get under the, under the fingernails of the whole thing and really get into it and, you know, get a human story. That's why it's in the first person. That's why it sounds like Brian's speaking. And he is, although he he just, you know, we had an eight-hour interview and I transcribed the whole thing, nearly went blind, but the, the number of questions that I'd had were pertaining to particular chapters. He'd agreed, in principle, the chapter list and what those chapters would cover. You know, his his life before Queen, his life in Queen, building the guitar, what happened with the guitar afterwards, live aid and all this sort of, you no know, just... Because you've got to have Queen in there, because people don't necessarily know that Brian May is in Queen, believe it or not. Because it's like Freddie Mercury and Queen, so you have to. That's why you have to mm. have Queen on the front cover, and that's why it's got to have Queen all the way through it. Because it's it's extending the interest, you know, the market, the marketplace for it, really, rather than just hairy-ass guitar players like me going, "Oh, fantastic!" And it sells nine copies. You know, I think the first edition done like twenty-two or twenty-three, which is pretty good for a narrow and deep book like that. And, uh, of course, the release of the second edition has been scuppered by COVID, of course. So it's supposed to be in May, so hopefully it's gonna be October. It's all printed, it's just the distribution and uh, you know people getting it into shops, the hard copies getting it into shops. But we'll try and do a bit of promo, see if Brian's interested in doing anything, really. I don't think he's very well at the moment, which is a bit concerning after the health scares that he's had. I don't have any insider information on that, by the way. Just don't think he's doing very well from what he's been saying on Instagram. So it is out there, but hopefully we'll get to do something together in October. And I think it's it's an improvement. So what the, one of the new chapters is about the film, as I say, which I was hot and cold about. The second one is in my opinion, more pertinent, although I understand why the film was in there, about the repairs that have been done on it by Andy Guyton from Guyton Guitars and Nigel Knight from K.A.T. who are just geniuses where this sort of stuff is concerned. But I think it is an improvement. Apart from the cover image, but I didn't say
2: that. Yeah, well, I suppose you've got to cover the the film, haven't you? Because, you know, yeah. I, I mean, I took my kids to, to see it. And um, I, I've had a... So we had a barbecue this afternoon, and I've had a lovely mm. afternoon, and I've been listening to uh, Small Faces at full volume. And then um, sort of like started to... Um, our friends went, we had a very socially distanced in the garden barbecue, it was lovely, mm. um, and then we sort of came in and we were tidying up, blah, 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 and uh, I just went and had a coffee before I was com- going to come in here and sort of like prep for this, and I I walk into the kitchen and my daughter is sat in there and she's listening to Queen, and you know, like, she got the most bizarre playlist that she put together herself, it got mm. Van Allen on it as well. <laughs> it's like this it, This isn't me or anything you know so it mm. kind of it did introduce the music again to another generation especially looking at a band now that's yeah. pushing what 50 years old
1: well yeah I think their first gig was in 69 so yes pretty much or well, 69 70 I think maybe the first gig was in 70 so around that sort of time but yes absolutely I mean you know Bryce, seventy well he was his birthday on the 17th so what is he, 73 now and honestly, honestly, they're they're bigger than ever. It's, mm. it's quite it's quite ridiculous. Well, it's not ridiculous. It's just great. You know, the tour that they were going to do that was cancelled because of the virus was colossal. And I, I you know, all, you know, all power to them. You know, if people don't want to, if people can't bear to see Adam Lambert up there, then fine. Don't go to the gig. That's you no know, no problem. You know, Fred's not going to come back anytime soon, is he? And the truth is that if Fred was still alive. They might be making music. They wouldn't be touring. You know, They wouldn't do three months in Australia and South Korea and Thailand and Korea and, and Japan and all those sort of places. They wouldn't be able to do it. Like they no. rack as Brian out, but he doesn't have to run around prancing, which is fair enough. Adam can do that.
2: Yeah, I, I mean, it's definitely a young man's game. I mean, the only person I've seen to be yeah. able to do it with any kind of consistency is Mick Jagger. I have literally no idea no. if someone who's post-75 can do that. Because I'm no, 25 absolutely. years younger and I can't do that.
1: Well, no, I mean he—he's he, the same wit sideways and, and, and straight on, isn't he? I, he and he's a—he's a one-off. You know, I—I don't—I don't share your die-hard love for the Stones, but uh, you can't argue with Mick Jagger. He's an—he's an absolute one-off for sure. I don't know how yeah. he does all that sort of stuff.
2: No, it's noticeable when I we went to see Kiss because my other die-hard love is Kiss. Is um and um. It was quite noticeable when I saw them last year that they're not moving with any kind of fluidity anymore. No, you know. No. But then they they are again post seventy. It's remarkable that they're still going at
1: all. Well, that's it. And it's these days you don't need to see them running around; just play the play the music. That's I think yeah. that's the thing with Queen to a lesser extent. Although the production is just mind is mind blowing. We saw them at the NEC. So, I'm sorry, the NIA when what, last time out 2017, I think the news of the world. Yeah. 2017, the news of the world and the, and the stage is like that. And it just goes up and they come out. It's fantastic. It's just brilliant. And Pete got us and me and Anya, who's my wife, um, a stage tour before she sat on Roger's kit. And, uh, it was just a fantastic day and a, a fantastic gig. And everybody likes Queen, don't they? You know, you might not like, I don't know, we will rock her, but you'll like, we are the champions. I can't stand them. But Bohemian Rhapsody is all right. You know, everybody likes
2: Queen. Sure. <laughs> yeah, I sure. mean, they are definitely one of those bands that's managed to encapsulate kind of several different kind of takes. I mean, you know, I even don't mind some of the stuff on Hot Space, if I'm perfectly honest. Some of it's bloody awful. But, you know... It, yeah. You know, you know, you go from a band that did Death on Two Legs to, I don't know, The Game or something. It's a, you know, mm. they are... They've changed quite a bit over the years, haven't they?
1: Yeah, very much so. But I think that was always the idea. I mean, there were four, four equal members that have very different styles. And there's a brilliant Roger Taylor quote that somebody would come up with an idea and then the other three would try and change it. And that's, <laughs> I guess that's what the creative process is in, in all walks of life. But uh, I mean, they are unique. It's a very over, overused word, but they but they are unique. And looking at the set lists from 2017, just the breadth of hits that they've had, and as I say, the reach that they've had globally. Even now, now Adam's been in there for five years and is perfectly accepted, as far as I'm concerned. You know, if you if you're going to cut off your nose to spite your face, well, I'm not going to go and see him if he's singing. Freddie, you know, Queen died with Freddie. That's often said by people spell Freddie with a Y. And it's like, dude, you can't like, you know, if Brian and Roger wanna go out and play with Adam Lambert, that's fine. And who cares, it came from American Idol. You know, it's a hotbed of talent and they, you know, he can sing, there's no two ways about it. He can absolutely sing like, a, like, like mm. nobody I've ever heard. And if they've got the, you know, there's a million people who can sing beautifully, but if you get the chemistry going, with the with Brian and Roger, then why shouldn't they go and play stadiums? You know, they're not going to do it again anytime soon. As I say, Brian seventy three, and had a dodgy heart complaint. You know, six months ago, which was really really scary yeah. for everybody concerned. I don't mean me; I mean his family and his friends.
2: Before we started um, recording, we were talking about the film, and you said that the yes. the guy that played Brian in the film is in the book as well. Yeah, yes, uh, and. Uh, I, you know, I'd be quite interested to know what he had to say, but I'm I, when I watched the film, I couldn't believe just how unbelievably accurate all of the actors were that kind of played them. I mean, it, it, it was,
1: yeah, you know, it's, he inhabited I, Brian perfectly, didn't he? Well, it's it, according to him, it, it took them, it took him months and months and months. I mean, he can play but he says he's a strummer rather than a soloist. He would never, you know, in his, in his mates' bands, he would, he would, you know, they'd do Wonderwall or something, and he'd go, Wonderwall. He wouldn't do any of the licks or anything. But uh, Brian spent a lot of time with him, apparently, and as an actor, they just he just absorbed it. And uh, so much so that Brian's daughter, Emily, I think it was Emily, when she saw the film, she was convinced that Brian had dubbed on his voice on on Gwilham's acting, but it was actually Gyllenhaal doing doing the voice. And uh, but even even closer is Joe Mazzala, who plays John Deacon. If you have oh, a the- look in the uh, honest to God, I mean you know R- Rami is Rami is amazing, and uh, I'm afraid like Ben the drummer is great, but don't necessarily look quite as close as uh, as Joe and Gyllenhaal do. But the, in the live aid bit. When Freddie Rami starts doing the deo, they just let a slide long look, and John Deacon, John <laughs> Joe looks just like John Deacon. It's really, really uncanny. Yeah, because there's the bit Brilliant beforehand uncanny.
2: in the when they're I think when they're rehearsing for Live Aid in the film, and he's got that bizarre flat top triangular hair. <laughs> Sort of thing going on, and like the the sort of like Hawaiian yes. shirt look, and it's like he it always yeah. looked a bit odd Perfect. in Queen, didn't he? But he catches it absolutely mm. incredibly. I was saying, I'm not that much of a fan that I mm. complained that Freddie's moustache appeared before it should have done, or whatever. You know, it's awful, awful <laughs> moustache gate. It, it was big news on social media for a while, wasn't it?
1: Well, I mean, Brian sidestepped that quite eloquently but you know i before i saw the film um i had a real problem with that but releasing mustache gate was when they were doing we will rock you everybody does da, 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 with his mustache and Grills going got a les paul i was going this film is going to suck yards of horse it's going to be absolutely awful what the else, he didn't have a moustache in 1977. <laughs> no, he didn't have a moustache in 1977. And I can't remember exactly. We have to buy the book to find out what Brian said about it. But he said it elsewhere as well. That don't let the basically the facts don't need to get in the way of a, of a good story. Yeah. You know, the other one is when they go to America for the first time in 1974 and play Fat Bottom Girls, which was written in 1978. Or <laughs> yeah, 1978. No, it's like. You could have, you could have done Killer Queen, but he wasn't having any of it. And you know, I, you know, I, I the way of dealing with Brian is uh, up to a point, like a reverential uncle. That sounds very patronising. What I mean by that is, just you we know, have a laugh, and it's, you know, it's not risque and it's not rude, and it's not swearing or anything like that, really. But I have to, as the co-author of this of the book, even though Brian had the final say on absolutely everything. I had to be very, very careful indeed about saying, well, I would do it this way. So what I use as sort of rule of thumb throughout the entire thing was if Brian says it in the book, excuse me, if Brian says it in the book, then that's how it is. Now that's why there's a couple of errors that have gone in there that we've corrected in the second edition, but it's little technical things. Like he said, a Vox AC30 is a class A amp, but it's actually a class AB. But I didn't know enough about it at the time, but he was convinced it's Class A, so we just changed it without telling him. Hope he won't <laughs> mind, because I'm sure he watches. Brian does watch the 9 to 42 podcast. I know that he does. Oh,
2: absolutely, yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah. Him and Anita love it. But it's just, but it's things like that. But, it, you know, it's like the cover. Can we use I that as a quote? <laughs> no. Oh, I don't care. Life's too, life's too. I've never met, I've never met Anita. Apparently she's a lovely woman, but I've never met her. And they're married, made in heaven. I'm very pleased for them. Um, he's very happy together with, uh, with with Anita. But I've never met her. I'm sure she thinks the book's a work of art. <laughs> I mean, anyone can fall in love.
2: <laughs> oh, like, nicely done. So, it's Thanks a very it, much. It's a plans for you to do any other
1: books. Well, this is this is where the where the where the buses come in. Um There were. But once you're once you're outside of Queen's umbrella, as it were, nobody wants to know is the short answer. I was toying with doing one with Steve Vai. Not I don't know Steve I've interviewed him several times, but I don't know him any better than that. But it would, it would be a question of can I send you a copy of Brian May's book and we do the same thing on you, but with the gem. Mm. But I don't know this it was it's a bloody hard work this book, I have to say, and it was um it was a real labour of love. It's a terrible cliche, but it's true. You know, we were I was pulling all, you know, to transcribe eight hours, you know, it takes a month to do that because your ears just shut down after a couple of hours, you know, just with, with these on, typing it all out. And then reading it out again to make sure you have made any faux pas or assumptions or typos or anything like that. And then it has to go to him and then it has to go backwards and forwards. And this doesn't happen, you know, overnight. I'll send it to him. Via his uh, PA Sarah, who I get on really well with, and I won't hear anything for two months, and then he'll send it. It's like getting your homework back, and it's got red lines all through it, which is quite demoralising. And then you have to do it again. So that's how it chi- that's how he chips away and moulds it to his own to his own uh, thought and what he wanted it to be. And if you know, he didn't have the time to sit down for three months and put all of his consciousness into a laptop. I was the conduit between. Uh, his colossal brain and the pages, what we hold in our hot little hands today. And that's that's what I was that's what I was there for. If I was gonna do an autobiography of him, and that hasn't been mentioned, I hasten to add, it would take forever because I would have to, you know, write a narrative and then, well, I was born in 1947 in this house, said Brian, pulling at his gray hair, you know, that sort of bullshit. Whereas in the first hand, first person, I'm sorry, that the book's written, at least you can feel that you're there and you can read a chapter and then go away and come back or dip in and dip out. You know, the, the six and a half thousand words, when he played the top of Buckingham palace is the only thing that he wrote before the book, before we did the book. So I didn't have anything to do with that at all other other than getting it subbed. Um, and that's a fascinating insight. It's not got anything to do with the guitar at all, really, other than that it's the guitar's most famous appearance, because that, obviously that was watched by many hundreds of millions, even mm. more the live aid, apparently. I don't know whether that's true or not, but that's what they said. You know, more people watched The Queen's Birthday and him playing on the top of the roof than watched Live Aid. So that's why it was in there. But he'd already written it and it was six and a half thousand words that he had written several years ago. But uh, it's, well, it's a really interesting read. It's a, it's a shame that I can't sit there in a fa- as a fan and read it because I've read it millions of times, it seems like it, hundreds and hundreds of times, darling, and gone, shit, I wish I would not put that in.
2: But as, as you know, I was just thinking—you know, not necessarily doing another book about guitars. But you were talking about how much you just love to write, mm. which is evident. I and mean, you know, I suppose—you know—is there anybody
1: that you would like to write a book on? Honestly, I can't think of anybody. I, I'm leaving guitarist. You know why? What happened there? Mm. And I'm not going to go. And there's no point in going into that now. But I've still, you know, six or seven years, I, st- I still haven't really got over it. And it was such a traumatic time. Just, you know, the reasons why are irrelevant now. Um, you know, I had four months on the Dole. Anya, my wife had just come back from doing six months research in Namibia, so she was on the Dole as well. And you can't have a mortgage in Bath or anywhere as a married couple and both of you are on the Dole. It was an, it was a, a horrible, horrible time. And it's only recently, like in the last 18 months or so, that I've sort of had any interest, really, other than just noodling in front of the telly, of getting back into guitars again. You know, I've sold 80% of the stuff that I had. I've got a few guitars. I've got a Hughes & Kettner head and a 4x12 cab, of course, because that's just what you need when you're not playing, is a 4x12 cab in the spare room. (laughs) Um, A little Hughes & Kettner Tudemeister or something vaguely Germanic like that. And uh, uh, a hot rod deluxe, which is all, which is all in, and a few, and a few guitars. But it's only recently, as I said, certainly within the last eighteen months, that I go. Well, maybe I can start getting back into it. That's why I've got no recording gear, because when, you know, when the guitarist thing happened, I didn't want to see another guitar as long as I lived. Which is a shame. And That's nobody's fault. That's my mind. That was my mindset on the whole thing. It's a, as I say, a very traumatic time, and I'm very glad we got through. It's mostly unscathed now. After all this, again, even six and a half years afterwards, um, I'm still I'm still bitter about it. Um, everybody who was there knows what happens, and I'm certainly happy to hold my hands up for some of it. And like I said, I'm not I don't want to go into it now because it doesn't matter. And I've, we've gone, I've sort of come through the other side of it with a with a couple of people who were there at the time. But um, you know, guitars was uh, guitarist was my ideal job. It was always what is your ideal job or well, writing for guitarist? I bought it since 1990, like everybody seemed to do at the time. You know, it was 450 pages in the in the mid nineties and good old Phil Hilborn, who's, a, who's still a really good mate of mine, would be on the cover with Eddie Van, not on the cover, but with Eddie Van Halen, that, you know, just noodling and living the dream. And that's what it was like. That's what it was like on guitarists. And uh, for a guitar, uh, you know, guitars, first and music second was always a cornerstone ever since I got my my first little nylon string thing when I was eight I think. And My parents were very musical, we had a very musical upbringing, my brother's a professional cellist, my middle brother who played in the MDs you might remember is a beyond mythic bass player.
2: I had no idea that was your uh, brother in the MDs. I should point out for and and, and to the five people in Iceland that... It's <laughs> uh, always um, so Iceland. So... I, it must have been the late '80s, early '90s. There was a there was a pub in Birmingham called Dirty Bets, which was a brilliantly named pub. And Simon's band, the, the Mad M.D.s, used to play there on a fairly regular basis. It seemed. Yes. Uh, uh, we traipsed to the other side of Birmingham to go and watch them play. It was like a couple of uh, bus journeys because I certainly couldn't afford a cab then. Um, to sit in this weird little boozer in bearwood and mm-hmm. um watch what can only be described as comedy rock i think <laughs> would be a fair description of I it. Mean, you all had you were called the mad mds you all wore doctor coats didn't you stethoscopes and stuff like that
1: well only for the first number darling but yes it was a bit like ian the it was a bit like in the goat to a lesser extent ian the goat were fantastic and uh,
2: uh only people uh, from birmingham know who ian the goat was and I think well that's okay that's we should a, just the leave it there in and the, you know yeah. if you want to know about ian the goat it's one of the greatest acts you will ever see just google it
1: absolutely we weren't anything we weren't anything as good as them. but uh, the reason we were called the mad MT is because our singer paul edwards tatie Ravon, bless his cotton socks was a theater nurse um at good hope hospital so he used to work he used to work in the in the theater um, the operating theatre obviously <laughs> and he happened, to, he could sing he's the best singer I've ever seen in a pub band of our stature, bar none he was, the, he was a better singer than Bertie from the E-Numbers, who again is a massive band in Brum, although not quite with the charisma, but the trouble with Paul is he, ha, he had to drink two bottles of Thunderbird Red before he'd go on because he had crippling stage fright <laughs> and although stage fright if you don't have it seems like a, quite a funny thing if you got it he he couldn't do it unless he was paralytic and you got half an hour out of him before he started taking his trousers off and you know look at this look at this girls and it's like yeah seen it you know and i've seen her ass as well again can we just do the next number <laughs> but it got it got really good i mean it got really good for a while it, it was me uh, uh, andy ward on bass good old nick Meakin on guitar Neil Troman and Ian Salter actually on drums at the beginning and Tatie singing and it's definitely rose-tinted testicles thinking back on that but it was just it was just fantastic for what was it three or four years when we were in exchanges and uh, that's why we wore doctor's co- <laughs> doctor's coats <laughs> for whatever reason but it was a good night out when everybody got smashed to bits and we'd make 30 quid which we'd give to uh, Percy in the sh- in the what the, what they called ghostfire no it wasn't go who was um aussie and birchie's band oh gunfire dance gunfire dance it was their band their van the Shaggin wagon <laughs> as it was resplendently sprayed all over and we give percy 30 quid for petron to take us all home at the end Ah, oh, it's magic absolutely brilliant
2: gunfire dance were uh, burn answer to the new york dolls
1: they were they were great absolutely fantastic
2: yeah, I loved them. I actually used to go and see them yeah. all the time. Them and Suicide Blonde, who were the mm. top of the pile for me, because they had yeah. really good tunes. Um, mm. And it it was just it was just a, a tragedy. I mean, uh, Gunfire ended up releasing an album, but it came out about ten years after they'd split up, I think. Oh, and right. Suicide Blonde managed a twelve inch, and that was it. Just just criminal. I oh,
1: know that's yeah. vaguely. That's pretty cool, I think.
2: I think,
1: I I I, uh, I, I did, I did, sorry, sorry, I did, I did, Ozzy was a great, was a great guy. I I like the way it was Ozzy and Birch, because they were both called Darren, weren't they? So just to differentiate between them, Ozzy and Birch, which is fair enough. (laughs) It was, I remember uh, uh, Ozzy used to play very straight on the drums, didn't he? His tom-toms were, from what I remember, horizontal. So he was like this, just really, and he was a very good looking lad, and he was uh, giving it all the twirlings. Brilliant.
2: Yeah, I mean, he he basically sat. His drum stool was so high, it was almost like he was stood up playing the drums, wasn't it? He
1: yeah, was... yeah, Boston.
0: yeah.
2: I, I I was just looking at uh... my reflection on the screen, and I've gone from been in full light to um, with the Beatles album cover, to now I can just about see my
1: forehead and the rest of it is completely pitch black. You've got a bit of black album stuff. Yeah. Well, I can pop a it's light not- on in here. I don't think we need to do that for the audio, do we? Oh,
2: I don't know. Uh, no, no, we don't need to pop lights on for audio. But no, I was not.
1: thinking that... Um, I do remember there's no correlation between the two.
2: As we've been on now for about an hour and 15 minutes, we should probably wrap it up because otherwise the episode oh, yes. is going to go on forever and uh, you know i don't i don't wish to uh, upset our kenyan listeners (laughs) um so um unless uh, and have you got any questions for now
0: i I, i'm conscious of the fact i've been sat here all this time and i've not said anything but it's been absolutely fascinating to listen to the two of you i mean aside from the fact i wouldn't have got a word in edgeways even if i tried um but it's been it's been a fascinating listen it really it really (laughs) has and 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 to 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 pick up what you just said jay both of you have got gradually darker as the evening's gone on so i'm in a room (laughs) with light you two are both (laughs) surviving on natural light and it's got it's got quite eerie quite you know quite quite quick i've
1: got terrible reflections on my bright red face absolutely awful
0: yeah but no it's been, it's been yes. absolutely fascinating I thoroughly enjoyed it um, cheers thank you would have liked to have pitched in a bit more but no I mean ev- everything's been uh, everything's been great I'm, I'm fairly certain
2: oh. that uh, someone's going to point out that my Brummy accent has got stronger and stronger throughout the
0: whole chat it's both of you both of your yeah. accents have got stronger all the way through
1: and I realised I just said Boston, which is just bullshit because I'm from Four Oaks.
0: <laughs> yeah, you're
2: a, you're actually from the posh part of Birmingham, unlike me. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and you're from where they put the... Well, oh, you well, you're you're a yam yam, aren't you?
2: Yeah? yeah. Well, I was born in West Brom. Yeah, so um, I kind of I well, you are. Grew up on the board. I grew up in Sandwell, um,
0: which is neither here nor West there,
1: Brom. really. No. Yeah, it is the Biffins Bridge of Brom. That's true.
0: So, um, should we should we go the whole? What, Hogan actually finished the podcast... Do the whole thing live. Do the whole thing live. Yeah, yeah. No no overdubs.
2: No overdubs. No overdubs.
0: No fix it in the mix.
2: Shall we call it, you know, uh, live killers?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, because they love the drum sound on that.
2: (laughs) My preference would be a live five, would it be now? I can't remember how many Kiss Alive albums there's been now.
1: Is there a fifth one? I didn't realize it was a fifth but they did, one.
2: Uh, they did a live one, a live two, a live three. Then they did a live four, which was the symphony thing, I think. Yeah, it was did. the orchestra one, yeah. They also did a millennium gig one. Uh, right. So this would have to be a live six then. live six.
1: Live have six. you seen the um, the DVD of a live four? Oh, is, yes. Is it, is, it, is, it, is it Peter Chris or Eric? I can't remember who it is. Uh, On the drum edges. Eric, probably Eric, is It's Eric, yeah. He's got an iPad on his bass drum and it keeps cutting and he's going <laughs> <laughs> like that. Which I always thought, fair play, fair play to him. <laughs> I'm all, I like Kiss, but not as much as you do. But, uh, yeah. Very few people do. Um, That's true. I, I,
2: I'm sure if I was American, I'd be very, very normal in my uh, love of strange men in makeup. But um, in the UK, they've never really taken
1: off no not really no they're fantastic I don't have a bad word to say about Kiss at all fantastic (laughs) we saw them in 1980 in Stafford Bingley Hall
2: yeah my first one was 83 in Stafford Bingley Hall which was really funny because last year when we had Paul Sayer at the guitar show from Temperance Mm. Movement he phoned me um, sort of like an hour before he was due on stage and he went I'm at Bingley Hall, where are you? And I went, I'm stood out the front, mate. And he went, I can't see anyone, there's no one here. And I was like, are you at Stafford, Bingley Hall? Yeah. No, mate, this is Birmingham, Bingley Hall. And and if you remember, he arrived about five minutes before he was due on stage, and we just threw the amps
1: on the stage. It was all that Lazy Jay stuff, wasn't it? And they put it on and they had it all set up with a set square. it looked absolutely wonderful. And you came in, and he said, uh, "You ain't going to believe this. He's at Stafford," and I mean, fuck off. Who goes <laughs> to Stafford, Bingley Hall? And he said, "Well, he is. He's, he's stuck at just stuck at Junction Ten, That's not, like everybody." Is. <laughs> but yeah, he, like you said, he came ten minutes before, not a hair out of place, and did sound like Good Lord Almighty with a custom telly, fantastic. Yeah. And if he missed it, come this year. Let's yeah. not talk for another three hours. Sorry. No,
2: no, no. We should wrap it up. Um, we've got. Um, <laughs> I suppose we just kind of wrap it up and we say who's coming next because we're doing this again on Monday night, aren't we?
0: We are doing this again on Monday night and um, Monday night we are talking to Steve Rothery, um, Meridian guitarist. Oh, nice. Um, and I've known Steve off and on for a, ooh, probably about seven or eight years and he's, mm. uh, he's just in the process of uh, releasing a solo album and he was free to chat, so we're chatting to Steve on Monday. Cool.
2: Cool. Right, I think we're uh, we're done. So um, it's probably good night from me and uh, good night from him and him and him. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks
1: Thank you you very, very much. much. Thank you, really appreciate it, guys. Thanks very much. Cheers, mate. Bye bye. Cheers.
0: Thanks for listening to Nine to Forty Two, the podcast from the team at the Guitar Show UK. If you've enjoyed the show then please remember to hit the subscribe button and share with other like-minded souls. For more information about 9 to 42, please follow us on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram at the Guitar Show UK. This has been an A Short Stories production.